This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Have you ever met an alien intelligence? If, like me, you grew up on H.G. Wells, Ursula Le Guin, and a lot of late-night science fiction movies, your mind probably went immediately to spaceships beaming down explorers from Alpha Centauri. But today we're going to speak with a philosopher who makes the case that we not-so-sapien humans actually share the Earth with at least one intelligent life form whose thought works profoundly differently from our own. It has eight legs and it swims. So from Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, a science fiction scholar from the Brandeis English Department. And as usual, I am going to be joined, although a little bit later, by my co-host, Elizabeth Ferry. Our guest today is, no, not an octopus, but in fact, a writer who, um, I think deserves at least the title of go-between to the octopus kingdom. Uh, this is Professor Peter Godfrey Smith, once of CUNY and now a professor of history and philosophy of science at University of Sydney. His truly capacious career includes books such as Theory and Reality, Darwinian Populations and Natural Selection, and most recently, a wonderful book called Metazoa that I hope we'll be talking about later. But we're welcoming him here today to discuss other minds, the octopus, the sea, and the deep origins of consciousness. So Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, John, it's a pleasure. Great, so I'm also delighted to announce today a Recall This Book first. We're gonna welcome two first-year Brandeis students who were winners of a contest open to all the students who are in fact reading Other Minds because it was selected as the first-year class read as part of the Helen and Philip Brecker New Student Book Forum. So Izzy Dupre, all the way from Wellesley, Massachusetts, and Miriam Fish of uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, welcome to Recall This Book. Thank you. Thank you. Great. It's really great to have you guys here. It's always exciting to, to try something new. Um, so before I ask Miriam and Izzy to share their questions with you uh, 
uh, for you with us, Peter. I just wanted to invite you to begin to, by speaking briefly about the book in question, that is Other Minds, uh, maybe highlighting what you think your main claims are. Um, it's it's a five, it, the book is five years old now. I was amazed to realize. So, you know, it'd be great to hear your takeaway in terms of what it aimed for then and, you know, looking back over five years, what you think it it actually accomplished. So over to you. Sure. The, the, the goal of the book is to explore encounters with, with minds that are not just non-human, but as as other, as as different as 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 not as possible, but as as we can find on Earth. And I do think that octopuses and other cephalopods are special in their otherness. So the goal of the book is that kind of encounter. Um, it's organized though very much around a feature of the evolutionary history of life on Earth and some historical relationships that link us with them. The fact that if you go back in time looking at ancestors of any two living things, in particular any two animals on Earth now, you'll reach a common ancestor, uh, something that was an ancestor of both of them, and you have lines of evolution leading from that common ancestor to, um, to us and, that, and that, other, that other being. Now, in the case of octopuses, the common ancestor is way, way back. It's about 600 million years ago, probably a little, a little flattened worm in the sea, so an octopus is, is, is unique among animals because it's so far from us. That's really a long time uh, in the history of animal life, 600 million years. Uh, but they're so complicated and they have a mixture of features that are quite reminiscent of human intelligence and human minds. And here I would especially talk about their inquisitive exploratory nature and they have features that are utterly different from us, features that make it very hard to imagine what it might be like to be them, hard to imagine what kind of thing experience is for them. Um, and part of that involves their radically different body, a body with no, almost no hard parts at all. And part of it involves their very different nervous system, where most of the neurons are spread through the body of the animal rather than being concentrated uh, in the head between the eyes, as with an animal like us. So the goal of the book is to try to make contact and to, to write about attempts to make contact with octopuses and other cephalopods, to try to get inside their heads, to try to, well, inside their bodies too, <laughs> try to work out what it might be like to be them, and to use that exploration to make progress on general questions about mind-body relationships, about the place of mind within nature as a whole. That sounds great, Peter. Thanks. And that's already, I mean, even with that question of getting inside their head versus their body, you've already raised so many interesting questions. And um, I think, um, Izzy, if you if you feel ready to, to, to take it away. Yes, sure. So um, as you mentioned, uh, you begin your book by kind of diving into the departure between people and cephalopods like 600 million years ago. And we know very little about our common ancestor and that uh, it we only really know it had a nervous system. And considering how far back our connection to cephalopods extends, do you believe that to the best of our knowledge, the octopus is nature's best example of what we could call an other mind? And if so, why should we care? 
like what value can we find in uh, exploring a mind most different from our own and considering what we do on land and what octopuses do in the sea, are we actually able to relate to each other even amongst our otherness? I, I do think they're about as good, almost as good a candidate for a radically other kind of mind as there could be. That it, it, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine there being a better one uh, if we had not discovered octopuses in nature. I think it would have been quite hard to have invented them mm. in our minds. I think it would have been quite hard to come up with with, with something like this. So, um, right, I do think they're special in that way that 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 they have that combination of being so far from us on the tree and so different and yet so complicated because of their uh, particular history and their particular lifestyle. Their importance fundamentally concerns what we learn about the place of mind within animal life. The fact that we have these multiple evolutionary pathways, uh, I think, tells us a lot about that. On the question of whether we we can make contact you know one could have imagined a situation where you began interacting with cephalopods and after a while just sort of thought well this is not working you know i can't make head or tail of anything that they're doing i think one of the great things about the situation is it's not like that uh there are these moments that at least appear to be uh contact between us and them uh, in my own case, in my own experience, it's been the giant cuttlefish, not octopuses, but those guys that have felt particularly important from that point of view. Uh, with the octopuses, my friend Matt Lawrence, uh, the guy who discovered Octopolis, uh, he seems to have a quite a special relationship uh, with them, a real octopus whisperer. They crawl all over him uh, at a moment's uh, notice. Not so much with me. And I think that's partly because I'm always the guy with the tape measure and the camera and, and fussing with them, you know, whereas Matt just sort of lies around with them. But in the case of giant cuttlefish, where I'm not doing that, you, you, you do have these, these moments where it's inescapable to think that there's a kind of inquisitiveness. They're trying to make sense of you, trying to make sense of how you fit in. Um, some are scared, some are aggressive, some are friendly. And all these things are recognisable. They all feel like making uh, a making of contact between minds. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Um, you've definitely given me a lot to think about. Um, we started talking about uh, how we can learn about intelligence itself from these creatures. And I started wondering how do we really measure intelligence? There's no tangible scale, as you mentioned in your book, uh, but we can look to skills. Um, and so I'm wondering uh, whether we can compare our skills as human beings to those of an octopus and whether uh, they are, are they even comparable? Do they, do they have the same level? Do, do we have the same capabilities just in different environments and how does environment really shape uh, what we define as intelligence as you say there's no scale there's no there's no overall scale or ladder 
that's a, appropriately used to rank different kinds of intelligence across very different sorts of animals. And I, I, I come back to that, that point over, over and over again in circumstances like this, because it's, it's, it's so hard not to, um, to impose a kind of scale. I think there are some, it's not a complete mess. I mean, there are some things that we can uh, look for and that people do look for um, in trying to make comparisons between us and them. Uh, dealing with novelty, effective dealing with novelty, I think is a very important cluster of features that distinguishes some animals from others. To what extent can an animal uh, move beyond a kind of routine response to circumstances? To what, to what extent is it able to handle situations that are genuinely novel and, and do something that makes sense? Now, once that question's asked, I think that octopuses uh, and some birds do appear to be special among animals with respect to that feature. They, 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 they transcend routineness in a way that is important. So that's a kind of cluster of features that I think repays quite a lot of attention, quite a lot of thought. Um, one, one last point about, about this, people sometimes in these contexts think that what's being learned is that, is that humans aren't special, that we're not particularly unusual animals. I resist that a little bit, I must say. I mean, I think that part of what has to be understood in this general area is how a um, initially pretty nondescript uh, primate lineage uh, was eventually able to do the extraordinary things that humans can do now. I mean, the use of technology of the sort that we're making uh, use of at the present is just an amazing thing in evolutionary terms. And I think it's important not to downplay that. I think it's important to realize just quite how weird we are in our use of technology, in the unusual kinds of social life that humans engage in. Um, the book I'm working on right now, which is a third book in the series, there's Other Minds, then there's Metazoa, which is about animals more broadly. And a third one, which I'm currently at work on, grapples more with that kind of, uh, with the peculiarities of the human case, more than I do in other minds. In other minds, there's a chapter about language and its effect on thought, the internalization of language. And I think that's a very important jumping off point uh, in trying to work out what makes us, in what makes us different. So no scale, as you say, some common currencies in thinking about uh, comparisons between animals are possible where dealing with novelty, I think, is a very important one. Um, but at, one, at some point, we have to think about what makes humans so weird. That's also part of the situation. So, Izzy, thank you so much. That's great. And um, Miriam, if you wanted to, to pivot on now. Sure. Thank you. Um, so given actually that perfect opening, um, I'd like to take another angle of Izzy's question and talk a little more about what it means to have knowledge. Um, throughout the course of Other Minds, there's a pretty clear message that comes along um, that octopuses are inherently living contradictions. They're both social and antisocial. 
They have this great ability to transform colors and yet they're colorblind. No matter what it is about them, it always seems that they are at both opposing polar extremes. But at the same time, we have their image plastered over the media, whether it's the Hydra and Marvel movies, which frankly speaking is just an octopus um, in its depiction in the way that it's been drawn, or whether it's the Netflix movies, the John Oliver special. For some reason, we're all octopus crazy. So what does this seem to say about us? In a different sense, as individuals who pursue an understanding of what knowledge truly means to be pursuing something which is ultimately unknowable. On the question of what, why octopuses have achieved the, the cultural role that they have, um, I, think I think there are several different reasons for this. There have been transitions. They've, they've taken on roles that have made certain kinds of cultural sense uh, in different settings. If you go back not that long ago, um, they were pretty universally uh, treated as a, um, an embodiment of, of horror, of, of awfulness, of, of something very negative in, in violence. Uh, Victor Hugo, the French novelist, has a famous passage in a, a novel where he just um, vents at the octopus. Um, and there are similar sorts of things that have been done with cephalopods uh, since since then. So H.P. Lovecraft, for example. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, also, and moving to other cephalopods as well as the octopus, moving to more uh, prosaic or um, cultural products, uh, the first James Bond book, Dr. No, has a giant squid as a sort of nemesis at, at one point. <laughs> um, th their sort of negativity dominated for a long time. And almost imperceptibly, that changed so that they're no longer so wholly negative. Now, I don't know if they have a kind of single valence now. I don't know if they... If they uh, uh, ex Except for otherness, strangeness, uh, differentness, I don't know if if they've taken on a sort of definite role that's replaced the very negative role that they had for a long time. And I guess one might think about that in terms of their their usability, their, their willingness to take on all sorts of different roles as humans uh, um, as as humans see fit. I don't know. I, 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 I think it'll be a little while, perhaps some years before it's possible to look back on the cultural transitions here and make sense of how they made this, how, how they made this shift. Uh, it might be too early to sort of to make full sense of it. Um, on the last, with respect to the last part of your question, I'm not a very skeptical person about the idea of uh, the unknowable things that, you know, the idea of things that we'll never know, the idea of mysteries that will remain mysteries. Uh, I tend to think that even the most puzzling questions that arise in this context concerning what it might be like to be them, concerning how they came to be so weird with that those contradictory combinations of features that you mentioned, and uh, with respect to the questions about how subjective experience fits into the world as a whole, I think the track record of skepticism, even in fundamental questions, is not a very good track record. So 
I fully expect that despite the perplexities, it will become possible to uh, work those things out. So based on the idea that you mentioned near the end, that even what may appear now to be unknowable may one day become knowable, would you be able to posit how that will impact how we see octopuses once they're singular valence of intense difference and the sense that something about them is so mysterious that we just want to know more. Once that veil is lifted, how do you think our understanding of them will shift? The picture I have is one in which there are twists and turns in the uh, roles that different kinds of animals take in, in culture that are, that are quite hard to predict. I do think, I mean, if we broaden out from the octopus uh, momentarily, I think that in the future, the idea of kinship between human life and other kinds of animal life, including octopuses, including other mammals and birds, but also including, to some extent, other invertebrates, I think a general gestalt of kinship is likely to become stronger, and I think that would be a positive thing. I think that's the way things have been tending. I'd be surprised if the if there was a turning away from that tendency in the near future. And um, as I say, I, th- I, th- I think of that as both on factual questions and also on evaluative questions, a, a rather healthy development. Um, so Izzy, Miriam, thank you guys both so much for for being here and um you know uh, we'll we'll say goodbye now but uh but but uh see you later for sure so thanks thanks yes thanks thanks to both of you thank you so much thanks. john elizabeth for having us and thank you so much peter i've loved hearing your answers thank you very thank nice you. to meet you and i enjoyed enjoyed this conversation thank you it was an honor wonderful bye-bye you guys so, so Peter, I might, if you don't mind, I just maybe pick up on a thread that um, that that uh, that Izzy and Miriam got started. I think it was Izzy who asked about the sort of land and sea question, and I thought that's actually a good way to uh, think about. Um, first of all, just to ask you to say more about the distinctiveness of the distributed cognition of like the consciousness that exists in the arms. The case I'm thinking a lot about at the moment uh, is is birds and the comparison, if we're thinking about land and sea questions, mm-hmm. the comparison between the, the kinds of lives that uh, sea animals have and the kinds of lives that, that birds have on, on land, the, 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 the different kind of organisation, in some ways a lot more centralised. So they've, they've, they've got the vertebrate um, centralized, you know, neurally centralized organization, unlike the octopus. In some ways, not. There are these perplexing left brain, right brain relationships in the case of birds. They have um, a partially disconnected relationship between left and right in the upper parts of their brain. And there's considerable specialization, it turns out. Uh, with respect to the sort of styles of the, the styles of cognition associated with left and right in the case of birds, mm. um, uh, does that combined with, in some respects, given the demands of the kinds of action that they engage in, you know, enormous cohesion and and uh, unity, you know, 
given the way the way a bird lives, it has to be able to act as a very coherent, coordinated, single thing. Mm-hmm. It can't have its parts doing the weird things that octopus parts do. So I've been extrapolating, trying to think about some just some first thoughts about land and sea relationships from comparing a case like the octopus with a, a case like the birds. Hey, Peter, can I just jump in to to understand? Yeah, make yeah, sure, sure I understand the triangulation there. Do do you want do birds then get located in the air as a third realm, or are you thinking about birds primarily like as another kind of land animal? Or I'm thinking of them as as a land okay. animal who. Um, I mean, obviously, they in 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 one sense they spend their time, part of their time in in yet another kind of milieu. Yeah. But something that they have in common with other and animal land animals is the difficulty of life on land, the difficulty of 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 action, the difficulty of dealing with uh, the um, the extremes of various kinds that 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 animals on, on land have long confronted. Um, the way I think I talk about this a bit in the book Metazoa is uh, life on land is harder for animals in some ways than life in the sea. But if you can make a living on land, there are vast opportunities. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's a lot more, there's a higher intensity energy flux. There's more energy uh, in the system there's the scope for actions that would be very difficult to achieve in the sea, but but they can be achieved on land. There's a, there's, uh, there's a scope that animals have for different kinds of behavior on land as compared to the sea. So that's, that's one thing I've been thinking about recently um, using birds as a, as a case. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So maybe I'll pick up on a question from something from Miriam's questions and kind of explore another aspect of the book. I just wanted to start with one comment because what you what you mentioned about the kind of formerly threatening valence of the octopus and other cephalopods kind of now shifting to a more mixed and maybe sort of friendly and accepting, it does kind of interestingly map on to what you were saying about a trend towards a sense of kinship with the other, right? So if they, if they, you know, in the past for Victor Hugo, octopuses represented the other, but the other was menacing and monstrous, right? So yeah, that's just, that's just to kind of set the stage. But I was really interested in the way in which you handle the question that other books have also handled uh, that talk about octopuses or say the film, My Octopus Teacher, with this kind of tension between wanting to understand octopuses in ways in which they're like us or could be kind of analogized, which you see in things like The Octopus Teacher, but not so much in your book. Um, I I really appreciated the way you kind of handled the question of anthropomorphism or the, or sort of kept it, kept it at bay 
even though it's sort of a an, an impulse in a sense. So I'm just curious how you grapple with that question, right? How do you how do you um, deal with the issue of understanding without um, only understanding through ways of being human? Uh huh. On on the first, I'll, I'll pick up the first thread a little bit. Um, before moving to that one. I haven't actually thought about this, this the, the particular contours of this enough, so it's good to sort of uh, be prompted to think through it. So, right, octopuses have acquired a more mixed, less wholly negative uh, valence. And I mentioned earlier um, the idea that there's a tendency towards a sense of kinship with more different kinds of animals. Uh, I guess those, those features must be connected. Um, if you had a situation where the octopus was replaced by something else uh, in the culture as the animal embodying horror, then you might think, right, this is not a general shift towards a sense of kinship. It's just the octopus has, has changed roles and switched roles with, with something else. And it doesn't look like that. I mean, John may have thoughts about this. He, know, he knows uh, this side of things much better than I do. There's not an obvious candidate there. I suppose it might be said that artificial systems have taken on uh, a role that was perhaps formally occupied more by the octopus as, as threatening, as other in a bad sense of other. And that with artificial systems in that place, octopuses have been freed up to just become um, interesting cousins. That's the hypothesis known as the open the pod bay doors, Hal hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. We and the octopus confronting, uh, con con confronting Hal uh, as organic beings having to deal with this even more disturbing you know, than any animal, artificial, uh, artificial being. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that makes some sense as a, a narrative, I guess. Um, I bet there are twists and turns. Um, yeah, I don't think you need to take it to, you know, completely literally. Uh, but I, I think there's, and there's interesting ways in which in popular culture, like a film that John and I saw together, District 9, which is sort of, exactly about the recuperation I of love that film. Yeah. I love yeah. that film. Yeah. 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 Right. How does District Nine fit in here? It's could you just finish the thought about District Nine? Sure. Yeah. So so District Nine is about this horribly frightening other, right? The prawns yeah. that are kind of subjected to all these kinds of othering, you know, ways in which they're made into monsters. And obviously there's a metaphor there going on about other kinds of othering, um, but very well done. Um, but, you know, through the course of the movie. Hey, sorry, Elizabeth, just to, just to jump in on that, be, to, people might not have gotten that it was um, in, set in South Africa. So the othering you're talking about is that it's an analogy of apartheid, but apartheid applied to this yeah, alien yeah. Apartheid, and but also any kind of refugee, other yeah. other kinds yeah. of situations, right? There's all sorts of um, uh, you know signposting for that. But through the course of the movie, the prawns kind of become recuperated in you know 
their otherness shifts from being menacing and monstrous to being, you know, very different yet approachable or yet somehow that some kind of a connection can be made mostly through the transformation of the guy whose name I've now forgotten the actor, name of the actor. But. Wickes so that's kind of where I was, was his name. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you see what I mean? So there's the sort of, the, it, it's a like microcosm of the travel of the octopus yeah. in a sense through the course of the movie. Yeah, right. Um, but I, I was I was sort of picking, uh, just sort of wondering if you, just to bring us back about this question about anthropomorphism, how to understand, how to understand without anthropomorphizing and how you dealt with that. Okay, right, yes. Um, what, one response I have is that in some contexts, I think a person should not be too worried or fearful of the anthropomorphic tendency. I think it's a natural human response to do this projection. And if you know what you're doing as you do it and, and take it for what it is, um, I don't think it's something to sort of feel guilty about. Uh, and I think the mistake comes from um, conflating that kind of uh, projection that we make given all the quirks of our own human psychology and the, the way in which we see the world. The, 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 the problem comes from mistaking that projection for a kind of uh, a scientific uh, um you know, scientifically, scientifically well-founded piece of hypothesizing. I think it's a natural thing to do, and it can be very suggestive. Uh, it can it can lead you to ask questions about what might be going on in the animal. So the idea of anthropomorphizing as a, as a um, a bogey of sorts, as something to sort of always be guarding against, I, I have a bit of a mixed view about. It. I, I I think it's. I think that the kind of projection that's involved, that's involved is a natural human response and can be informative. One just has to know what one's doing and, and uh, try to think about the ways in which what might seem a very salient-looking feature of a situation from the human point of view might be very much other than that from the animal's point of view. So, so can I can I take that? I'm going to take that as a person trying to write about science fiction now. I'm going to take that in a completely self-interested direction and just sort of ask, you know, noticing that from Jules Verne forward, we've mentioned a lot of sort of science fiction or speculative fiction works in this conversation. And I and I wanted to ask you, you know, Peter, maybe on this point about pathetic fallacy or empathic projection. But just more generally, whether science fiction and speculative fiction and other kinds of um, aesthetic experiment, you know, how you respond to them in, in terms of your own work and your own thinking about this problem of the distance between human consciousness and that alien that's out there. Like I can see an objection that would be to say, you know, that the problem with literature is that it's just it's just guesswork. It isn't scientific. All it does is kind of parasitically you know, run out any possibility without any kind of um, objectivity or rigor or something like that. And then I can see another point of view that would say, well, no, these are actually, you know, kind of like that Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bat question? Like these are, these can be keys that unlock a new way of looking at a problem. So, yeah. They could be keys of that sort. I wouldn't want to make the value of speculative fiction too dependent upon that kind of 
ancillary role mm-hmm. in relation to scientific understanding. I mean, one can imagine telling a story if a person challenges the value of that kind of work by saying, oh, no, it's really valuable because it gives us ideas that can turn out downstream to have scientific importance. They might, but I, but, but I wouldn't want to, to tie too much of the justification of the practice and the activity to, to something like that. I think it has its own, I think it has its own cultural importance. It can be a kind of arena for a fairly concerted thinking through of some of these themes. Um, Adrian Tchaikovsky, who's a science fiction writer, um, has a has a book. Uh, actually, moment, just, Children of Eden. Yeah, I just read it. Actually. Uh, where, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. He um, where he explores octopus um, experience in quite a detailed way. I mean, it, it's not a sort of passing or impressionistic treatment. It's it's quite a detailed, thoughtful treatment where he tries to imagine octopus life as a kind of in some ways a dialogue, in some ways almost a three-way conversation between the central brain, between the distributed nervous systems in the arms, and in a more uncertain role, the the colour-changing skin itself. Um, In the book that follows up Other Minds, the book Metazoa, at one point I make use of Tchaikovsky's thought experiment a little bit explicitly and say, right, this is a working through of some of those themes in the in the in some ways very unconstrained medium of speculative fi- speculative fiction, but he made the choice of trying to stay fairly faithful to the biology and to try to do so in a way that combined uh, pure imagination with a, a degree of rigor, and I think that wound up being a particularly valuable exercise. It's 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 it's, it's a good book generally, but it also I found it very thought provoking with respect to questions about about um, octopus experience. Right, so the, the, there's, there is the genuine feeding backwards and forwards between more scientifically oriented discussions and fiction. I wouldn't want that to dominate our response to fiction though, that to speculative fiction, that I, I keep coming back to that. Can I ask you about how you connect that to, uh, this may not be an issue you want to touch, but how you connect that to the notion that we may be approaching real artificial intelligence, silicon-based consciousness? Because it strikes me, again, to invoke the triangle, you could see AI as a different form of distributed cognition or a different form of embodied mentation. And does that seem too speculative a thought experiment at this point because we're too far from actual consciousness? Or do you actually want to go there and say what you think we might learn from that sort of consciousness or experience? One thing that bears on this, uh, that informs my response, is the fact that I'm a little sceptical about some claims in the area of strong AI, more so than some naturalistic philosophers and, and, and people in this area. I suspect we aren't that close mm-hmm. to uh, building a uh, an experiencing artificial system. Mm-hmm. And I think that because I've become convinced of the importance of some physical peculi- peculiarities of nervous systems, 
um, some things that are hard to build into an artificial system that I, um, well, rather hard to build into an artificial system using the kinds of technologies and the kinds of platforms that people, that people um, make use of now. I think of those, some peculiarities of nervous systems is very important in understanding experience. And I think the brain is less well understood as just a big switching network, a big computational device than, than I thought you know, 10, 20 years or so ago. It is then possible to re-ask your question in a setting where we imagine the changes on the hardware, the computer hardware side that I, that I had in mind. Let's just posit it could happen. Let's say it's yeah, not 50 yeah, years, yeah. it's 500 years, but yeah, yeah. Or, or something between. Okay, good. Uh, would, be be my, would be my guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there'll be the question. I mean, if, if we take nervous systems as um, the starting point, there are both very centralized and much less centralized nervous systems. And if we're building artificial ones, there'll be the option of building either more centralized or less centralized ones. Um, in the case of the octopus, I think we've learned, it's not that they're utterly and radically decentralized. They're not like a sort of internet uh, object. Uh, there's a lot of cohesion mixed with some surprising absences of, of cohesion. It's very much a mixed story. And I don't think we yet know enough about the balance or the relationship between the more cohesive and the less cohesive sides of that case to know what to build and what we'd get if we built particular sorts of things on the artificial side. Um, right, so my response is uh, I don't think that the present-day internet or things like it or present-day decentralised artificial systems are particularly close to being a, uh, a new kind of experiencing being. I think that future artificial systems may well be. I think they'll, they'll look more neural. They'll look more nervous system-like than the ones that people typically have in mind. And when we build those things, we'll then have to think about the uh, relationships between more cohesive, centralised, more quasi-autonomous with respect to parts organizations, just as we're currently grappling with in the case of the octopus. Um, well, Peter, you, you really appreciate your time. You've given us so much to think about. And can can we just sort of wrap it up? There's a signature question we we like to ask people at the end, and I, it, I'm just springing it on you, so feel free to take a pass if you want to. But we ask people about a recallable book, which basically means if you enjoyed this conversation, like if you like thinking along these lines, is there a book that you would look back at that you would point to? And you've already given us that Adrian Tchaikovsky science fiction book. So, you know, we'd be asking you for a bonus in a way. But um, I mean, if it, so for example, I was going to pull out Darwin's expression of emotion in man and animals, because I love the way that that book, you know, at the end of his, his trilogy of evolution books, you know, that he talks about human and animal emotions kind of aligned with one another. So that'll be my recallable book for today. And I, if, I wondered if you had one. 
Yes, uh, I'm, I'm going to go into a more speculative place. Um, I had forgotten about this book for years until I did uh, a, a radio show on the BBC. It was also about the literary side of this. And it just came suddenly back into my mind that when I was a little kid, one of the books that most, like I read sort of probably five or six times, came back to over and over again, was a book by uh, the, you know, fairly high-end kids writer, Eric Linklater. Uh, he wrote a book called The Pirates in the Deep Green Sea. Wow. Uh, that featured an octopus who saved the world. <laughs> uh, and the octopus, this, and this was written a long time ago, but it, it has a kind of, the, the, one of the central ideas in the book has a kind of almost sort of a deft postmodern element to it. It turns out that the world is physically held together by the lines of latitude and longitude. Uh-huh. Those things on the map correspond to cables uh-huh. uh, that uh, are physically real and without which uh, the earth would fall apart. And I won't give away all the plot, uh, but there is a threat to the integrity of the cables and the day is saved by an octopus. Peter, we should just thank you. And I'll just say that Recall This Book is sponsored by Brandeis and by the Mandel Humanities Center and this year by the New Student Book Forum, this episode. Uh, sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Puri. Uh, those two contest-winning first years we heard from at the show as the show began were Miriam Fish and Izzy Dupre. Uh, Elizabeth and I are, as always, eager to hear your comments, your criticism, and your thoughts on today's discussion and on the problem and promise of non-human intelligence and sentience. And if any of you wants to write telling us you're never again going to eat octopus, we would definitely like to get that email. So um, please write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, keep listening for related material or even better, head over to our website for additional goodies that we're going to be releasing during our month of the octopus. So, Peter, thank you so much for the conversation. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And from all of us here at Recallis Book, thanks for listening. <laughs>